start a new series called Saved. Um, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament and what the Old Testament has to say about save, salvation. But for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at salvation throughout our biblical history. In the Methodist Church, it appears that we don't often, always or often talk about salvation um, or what salvation means. Um, and yet, salvation is at the heart. It's the core. It's the foundation of all that we do talk about and preach on Sunday morning. It's the reason I get up on Sunday morning and come in. It's the reason why we have joy in our lives. And so it's, it's at the heart of all that we do. Salvation is um, a word, but it's also a theme threaded throughout the scripture from the very beginning in Genesis to the final amen in Revelation. We hear uh, about God's salvation. And so many of us, I don't know about you, I know that I did, uh, grew up in a tradition that repeatedly asked um, this question. Are you saved? Do you know Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and personal Savior? And we, we ask that question at baptism, too. Do you know Jesus Christ? Um, those are two very important questions. And while they're important, they, they also prompt us to ask some equally important questions. And those would be, what are we saved from? Saved from what? And what are we saved for? And in my, I'd love for you guys to let me know. In my tradition, there were two, two right answers. That we were saved from hell. hell, and we were saved for heaven. But what else? If you, if you were just, if we were like throwing stuff on a blackboard, what else would you say we're saved from? Sin? Torment? Death? Safe from death, yeah. Yeah. Lots of stuff. We're going to look at it. And what would you say that we're safe for? Eternal life. And we'll be looking next week at what all the implications of, of eternal life is. We won't be looking at eternal life today, but that will be next week. Um, safe for eternal life. Anything else come to mind? To glorify God. Good, good. Uh, so we're going to be taking a look at those, some of those questions. There, this, also some questions come up when we talk about salvation, when we speak of salvation, and say, what, what do we really mean by that word? What are all of its nuances? And is there a connection between uh, salvation in the New Testament, the way we think of it, and salvation in the Old Testament? Or is there a bridge there where all of that, where it looks similar? And if we agree that Jesus saves, and I hope that we do since we're all here this morning in this church, if we agree that Jesus saves, how does the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ bring our salvation in all the many ways that that might look? So, and another question is raised, what about the Methodist tradition? Are there things or do we hold any unique views in regard to salvation? And the answer is yes. Um, what do we each deny different denominations sort of emphasize different things about salvation and, and we are no different and so we'll be exploring that and what do we mean when we talk about the scripture way of salvation as john wesley understood it 
So over the next four weeks, we're going to be studying that. We're going to explore all of those questions and discover the many different ways in which salvation is spoken about in the Old and New Testaments, looking at the ways in which Jesus brings salvation, and finally taking a look at our own Methodist tradition and John Wesley's scripture way of salvation. And it will look something like this. Today, we're going to be being saved, the Old and New Testament uh, salvation. Uh, Old Testament and salvation saved next week for what and um, from and for what we're going to look at salvation in the New Testament and sort of draw some connections between those two um, week three we're going to talk about how Jesus brings salvation or atonement and the many different theories of atonement a few not all of them a few and then what would John Wesley say the Methodist pers- perspective will be week four So why don't we jump in and talk about the Old Testament. So today we're going to look at salvation in the Old Testament, and we're going to just do a big, a big brushstroke. I'm going to spend more time on some topics and less on others, and I know you'll leave today and say, but she didn't talk about this, and I know there's not time for all of it, but hopefully I'll make some connections that I don't make today we'll make next week as we talk about the New Testament, as we look at our salvation history. Um, now, the Bible, even if it doesn't use salvific terminology by saying saved, uh, it does introduce on almost every page the theme of salvation. You can't turn, I promise you, three or four pages without finding a theme of salvation. Um, the Old and the New Testament alike employ this incredibly rich variety of terms to express this comprehensive nature of what salvation is. And believe it or not, I mean, I I think probably most of you know this, we have a salvation narrative that, as we said before, spans from the opening pages of Genesis, and it goes all the way to the final amen of Revelation. Words, some, a few words, there are a lot of used, a lot of words used to describe salvation, but some of the words that we'll find in the Old Testament uh, and the new, and the biblical range in the meaning from uh, the most ordinary secular sense of salvation, like being saved from one's enemies, um, to the most profoundly theological discussion of being saved for God's kingdom and e- eternal life. Um, some of those words in the Hebrew scriptures, some of these words include uh, include salvation, but others as well, not limited to these. Um, Salvation means to be delivered, to bring to safety, to redeem, and redeem would mean to to buy back, like in a slave market, to restore, uh, and of course to save, which in Hebrew is yasha, yasha, and and from that word you get, uh, from those three little Hebrew letters, you get the word uh, Yeshua, Yashua, Joshua, Joshua, whose name means to save. He led the Israelites into Canaan. And in the Greek, it turns into Iesus, which means Jesus. So Jesus saves. So both Joshua and Jesus have very salvific names. And the recipients of the salvific acts in the Old Testament can be individuals, They can be groups of people uh, and even nations, not just the nation of Israel, but there are other nations that we find that receive God's salvation. So 
as we talk about individuals and salvation, individuals in the Old Testament find help and deliverance in the face of very specific, sometimes very ordinary problems. Um, and what we see, for instance, a lot in the Psalms, we see um, in the Psalms prayers for deliverance from wicked people and personal enemies, from war, um, for victory for the king, which would be in the beginnings of the thought of salvation was that salvation was a war term, to be saved from one's enemies and from war. And so you see a lot of that, for instance, in Psalm 43. The psalmist says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against ungodly people. So, from, so we want defense against wicked, wicked people. Uh, from those who are deceitful and unjust, deliver me. So it's, you know, like we might be praying if we were going uh, into a lawsuit or into a real uh, time of trial, the same kind of prayers that we would have. And then the prayer for the king. Give victory to the king, O Lord, and answer us when we call. Also, we find that um, a sort of ordinary prayer request, just like we give today, like we did this morning, uh, there's a lot of um, salvation that comes to barren women. Barren women receive the gift of a son. And a lot of women in the Old Testament, women like uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, of course, and Isaac's wife, Rebecca, and, of course, even a woman by the name of Hannah. And when we read in 1 Samuel about Hannah, that there was a certain man from the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. And what happens is to Hannah is that, of course, Hannah had no children. And she goes to the temple and she prays that God would, would spare her this humiliation of being barren and that she would have a child. And God answers her prayers and she gives birth to a boy and she names him Samuel. And Samuel, as you recall, becomes the prophet who anoints the first king of Israel, King Saul. And so we also see in these responses to prayers about barrenness and prayers for children um, that Isaac is born, of course, to Sarah and Abraham, and, it, and he, his life begins the fulfillment of God's promise that Abraham will be the father of many nations, not just one son. And of course, that barrenness was over, that they were both so old that they shouldn't be able to have children. And so we have Samuel, who's born to a barren mother, and Isaac. And then we find, of course, um, Jacob. Jacob, um, the son of Rebekah and Isaac. And Jacob becomes the father of 12 sons whose families form the 12 tribes of Israel. And so you, we can begin to see a connection here between answered prayer on an individual level, and perhaps what the future. So this already of God answering prayer for individual needs and God caring for individual needs, but also that somehow that salvific act has a future element to it. Also some individuals that receive God's salvation, and we don't often think about them having being treated salvifically, are Adam and Eve. Um, you'll notice when we think of Adam and Eve, they disobey God, and they're often portrayed, and we often think of them as being completely cut off from God's grace and presence, that they are put out of the garden, sort of never to be seen again, and 
God doesn't, you know, they are just gone. And yet, what we find if we look closely at the scriptures is that God's care and salvific actions are present even for Adam and Eve after their disobedience. After God declares the consequences of their actions, that uh, she will have pain in childbirth, that Adam will have to toil very hard uh, to till the soil, and that there will be enmity between the serpent and humanity. Um, God cares for them, we find, in two ways. The first way uh, we find in Genesis 3.21 is that uh, you remember that Adam and Eve went hiding in the garden and they sewed together once they discovered they were naked they sewed together some fig leaves right and and they covered themselves up with that and in Genesis 3 21 it says and the Lord God made garments out of skins for the man and his wife and clothed them God doesn't abandon them God continues to lovingly provide for them um, and they get to trade in these horribly itchy fig leaves for something soft and warm, that God cares for them even in their disobedience. Um, and then we find this, and we don't often think of this, this is just a, another interpretation, we don't often think of this as being um, a gracious act on God's part, but let's read this. This is after they've disobeyed. Then the Lord God said, see the man has become like one of us, the meaning both of them, knowing good and evil. They've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were not supposed to do. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. That was one of the consequences. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. So they can eat from the fruit of the tree of life and live forever. Now, while not being able to eat from the tree of life and live forever is a, is a consequence of Adam and Eve's disobedience, um, and their sin is taken seriously, it's also sometimes seen, it's also been interpreted that this action on God's part is really, could also be seen as a compassionate act. Because to live forever in the state that they had become would not be desirable. So it's, it's both a consequence and something that really protects them from a horrible eternity, right? to live forever in the state that they were in. And so we find, of course, then throughout Scripture, how do we redeem this state? We, we move on from there. So the saving acts of God are seen in the lives not only of individuals, um, but also in groups. And we find Noah and his family, you know that story very well. Um, the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great on the earth. So what began in the Garden of Eden has only escalated um, and every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil and as John Wesley would say in the scripture and that continually and the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart so the actions of humanity were grieving God so the Lord said 
I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. So there's one person at least who's left that seems to be obedient to God that um, is not wicked. And so God sees that there's this one person who's found favor in the sight of the Lord. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. So we've got to do something about this. So make yourselves an ark of cypress wood. And we know what happens next. So Noah and his family are delivered uh, from the same waters that bring the death of those who have caused all this violence on earth. Those same waters bring life and deliverance and salvation to Noah and his family. And so after the flood, there is a covenant. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature, every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So God provides through Noah nothing short of a new creation, restarting over, just like the waters, uh, the chaos in the waters of creation we have chaos in the waters of the flood. And now through Noah, um, there'll be a new creation through the salvation of Noah and his family. So they actually become a holy remnant, which we'll see more of later, a holy remnant from which the entire human race will now be regenerated. And then as our story, as our salvation narrative arcs, we come across Abraham and the, and the patriarchal narratives. And we see that there are a lot of groups within these who receive saving blessings. And we're not going to touch on all of them. We're just going to hit some high spots. Uh, but obviously, there's Abraham himself, Abram. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Noah is receiving grace that is supposed to turn around and be given to the rest of the world. And so Abram went, I'm not Noah, Abram. And so Abram went as the Lord had told him. So you see, Abram is obedient. Abram, Abram did what the Lord said. And so Abram and Sarai, go along on this journey that God has sent them on. And what we find on their journey, we're not going to go into all of the stories, but they are saved from a lot of stuff. Some of their own doing, they, they have some mishaps that, that uh, they get into some trouble in Egypt with the Pharaoh. And, um, but one, they're saved from famine. They're, there's a famine in the land that they're in. This is a real theme in the Old Testament. And so they go to Egypt because there's more food there. And they go to Egypt, and while they're there, they get to know Pharaoh, and they have lots of scrapes with him, and God delivers them 
with a plague, actually. Does that sound familiar? So God delivers them from uh, this bad news with Pharaoh. And so salvation is coming through Abram. And God makes a covenant with Abram and changes his name of Abraham so that he will be a father of many nations. The Lord said to him, I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant. There's, see, there's a second covenant here. My covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Ooh, there's an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien. So we see this secular sort of salvation as in I'm going to give you land, but sort of an e e more of a theological salvation in that I want to be God to you and your offspring after you. And so you're going to have the land where you're now an alien, all the land of Canaan for a perpetual holding. And I will be their God. So we find, remember we had Jacob who has the 12 sons. One of those sons is Joseph. And Joseph's family, this is uh, under the stories of the patriarchs, Joseph's family um, is delivered from starvation. Again, there's a famine. And they end up going to Egypt for food. And Joseph happens to end up being there too because of some shenanigans that his, he and his brothers get into. As you all know the story, Joseph uh, is the youngest of those 12 sons, and he's not the favorite among his brothers, but he is the favorite among his father. It causes lots of jealousy, and they decide they're going to do him in and get rid of him because they just don't, they can't stand him. He's kind of a, he's kind of a braggart, and you know, he, he, he just drives them nuts. So they sell him to some merchants who are going to Egypt, and they tell their dad that he's been killed um, by lions or something. And so um, he ends up being taken to Egypt and somehow ending up as a servant in Pharaoh's court. He's really smart. He's good. He rises to the top. And lo and behold, many years later, when they're all grown up, there is a famine in the land. And they have to go to Egypt to beg for food. And guess who they go to? They end up going before Joseph, but he's all grown up now, so they really don't recognize him. But in the end, uh, the f his family's delivered from starvation. Joseph is reconciled with his brothers, and the whole family moves to Egypt. And what his brothers had intended for harm, we find in the scripture that God intended for good in order to preserve a numerous people. So there's a sense in all of these stories, in this deliverance or salvation, whether it's of individuals or of groups, that these salvific, salvific acts seem to serve a purpose beyond the individual salvation, that there is that, and God cares for God's people, but also that there is a purpose or purposes. For instance, we've seen there is that earthly or secular dimension of salvation. God really does care and have mercy for the physical needs of God's people, the desires of individuals, the groups, and all of God's creation. So there is a very this-worldly nature in the, in the Old Testament and somewhat the new of salvation. But there's also side-by-side side, a spiritual or theological dimension to salvation beyond um, 
fulfilling and protecting the needs and the desires of individuals and groups. And what we see throughout is it's understood. There's not on, even on the pages of the Bible, didn't we say is in uh, Esther, where God's name is never even mentioned, and yet God's presence is palpable. And it's, it's just a given that salvation comes by God in, in everything, even though God may use another deliverer like Moses or Joshua or Cyrus, the, the king of um, the Persian Empire. Salvation comes by God and for God. And so even though God does use other individuals like Abraham, Moses, Joshua, the judges, um, David, Cyrus, Esther, Ruth, it's always understood that God is the Savior. There may be a Messiah, an anointed one, to help bring that salvation, but God is the one who saves. And these acts of salvation occur in history. They actually occur in historical times, in the time of King Cyrus, or the time, in, the, in the time of David. And so these acts which occur in history, though, seem to be moving toward a future purpose. There's an already and a not yet to come element in each act of salvation that I'm experiencing this salvation now even if it is of a religious nature whether it's just a personal nature or secular nature or religious nature and yet there's something that says there's more to come there's there's more to come so in addition to individuals and groups that experience salvation above all above all it's the people and the nation of Israel who receive salvation. And the absolutely, the determinative experience of God's salvation in the Old Testament happens in the Exodus. That is the biggest salvific event in the Old Testament. That is where everything points to. Um, and of course, the Exodus includes so many elements that are salvific. Deliverance uh, from Egyptian bondage through the plagues, the last one being the Passover. It's where they are delivered from death um, and delivered uh, through the miracle of the Red Sea, passing through waters. And of course then, their 40 years in the wilderness and God's fatherly care for the people of Israel through the wilderness. All of that speaks of salvation. Um, so, by the time we have the Exodus, Joseph and his brothers, remember they, they moved to Egypt. They all stayed there because the food was good. And the Israelites, after so many years, the, the king, that the Pharaoh that was there didn't know who they were anymore. They became, they were very prolific. They, they, they multiplied like God commanded. And the, the, uh, the folks in Egypt are afraid that they're going to take over. And so they enslave them, and they've been slaves for 400 years. And it's been a long time. And so God calls, remember, uh, Moses is also saved through an ark, through water in the Nile. Other babies are being thrown into the Nile to be killed. Noah is saved by the same waters that are killing other babies. And he grows up in Pharaoh's court, and God calls him from the burning bush to deliver God's people. And so the Lord said, I've observed the misery of my people who were in Egypt. I've heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. They've been praying. I've heard their cry. 
Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians. So this is that salvific language there. And to bring them out of that land, out of a harsh land, a land where they're oppressed, into a land that is flowing with milk and honey, a, a land where God is going to provide for them. They cry, the cry of the Israelites has now come to me, and I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So oppression is a big theme of salvation. God delivers from oppression. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And so here God's deliverance has that earthy dimension of we're going to save people who are being oppressed. Let's get them out of their troubles. But later we see a more spiritual one also. So in Exodus, the Lord says to Moses, so he says, okay, you're going to go to Moses. You're going to tell him all this stuff. Let my people go. And here's what you're going to say to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son through Abraham, right? And through Joseph, and I mean through Jacob and Joseph. Israel, these, these 12 tribes of Israel, is my firstborn son. And I said to you, let my son go, that he may worship me. that he may worship me. So the reason why we're securing their freedom is so that, really, it's a Sabbath thing. You can't worship on the Sabbath if you, you have no Sabbath. There's no rest for the people, and there's no way they can worship God. So let them go so they can worship me. So there's the spiritual element of salvation also there, but also then once the Sinai covenant is made uh, and the giving of the Ten Commandments, what we see there is that God speaks all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They're standing on the mountain getting, getting ready to receive the commandments. Out of the house of slavery. And then we get the list of the ten. You shall have no other gods before me. And of course we go through the ten commandments and realize that they are all geared toward love of God and love of neighbor. That there's that spiritual and that everyday earthy. How do we get along? How do we live peacefully together? And how do you express your love of God? By loving your neighbor well. So the people are gathered and they're getting, the, the Moses is going to bring down the commandments and God is speaking. And when all the people witnessed this thunder and likeness, this, this theophany on the mountain, it was kind of scary. You realize God's, you know, you don't want to just flitter with God. Um, the sound, so there's a sound of the trumpet and the smoking mountain. They were afraid and they trembled and they stood at a distance. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. For God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. And here's where we see this element coming in. I've laid all this law out for you so that you do not sin. And now that the law has been given, there's no question as to what God requires of God's people. Um, so the wilderness becomes this place, the next 40 years, of spiritual and national formation. If they're going to be a light unto the nations, if they're going to be blessed to be a blessing to others, they're going to have to learn how to do that well and how to live under God's, um, under God's and be obedient to God. And so... Um, this is, they're being saved to be a blessing, 
And so now here's how they're going to learn how to do that. But it doesn't take long if you've watched Cecil B. DeMille that um, the first act of disobedience or sin uh, toward God occurs with, you know, you shall have no other gods before me. And here comes, the, Moses hadn't even gotten down the mountain yet, and here we go making the golden calf. And so this cycle of disobedience and returning to God and trying to uh, atone for that this whole cycle begins here. This is the first sin of the nation of Israel as a whole, uh, right here before they ever get started on their journey. So in the wilderness, however, even though they're disobedient, again, it's a spiritual, it's a big spiritual formation class in going through the wilderness. And God continues, even in their disobedience, to heal the people like a doctor, it says. He feeds them manna from heaven, and there's a dove, right? Uh, they, get, they get food, manna from heaven, he feeds them. Um, Moses strikes a rock and water pours out. So in the wilderness where they are helpless, God provides for them. And even the name of Joshua, who is Moses' successor, points, of course, as we've already said, to the saving power of God from the Hebrew yasha, which means to save. So the scriptures throughout support this conviction that God continued and continues to save Israel from other people. Um, during the time of the judges, we were in this sort of sin cycle. So it would say that uh, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and because of their sin, he sent someone to come and rule over them, and then they repented and were reconciled with God, and then he sent someone to lead them. He sent a judge to, to free them. And so we see that cycle in the time of the judges. Uh, God continues to save Israel from other people during the Davidic kingdom. David was typically at war it's all the time. He's at war with someone. And we find that God is, delivers David from Saul. He's running from Saul all the time. Who wants to kill him? And from his other enemies. Um, to the uh, exile, so once uh, Babylon takes over and um, they are the Israel is sent into exile, God, even though they've been disobedient, and that is their consequence, God continues to care for them in exile and then sends Messiah to lead them home and also in the post-exilic uh, era. Um, the prophets... I'm just going to mention them here because I didn't have them written on here. The prophets often speak then of times when God's own people, having been oppressed and released from oppression, start oppressing their own people, start um, cheating them on, you know, when, when you buy something at the market or start uh, making slaves out of their own folk. And so the, um, the prophets will often speak of... Um, justice, God's justice, this, that we need, that God's people have not taken care of their widows and their orphans, those disconnected from the economic system, and so justice is a huge thing. So in each era, the people look for a Messiah, someone who's anointed to come and bring God's salvation, and in each era, God, the true Savior, sends someone to save them. And sometimes God's salvation seems restricted, restricted to this little holy remnant, a small number of people, and sometimes it's to the, to the people as a whole. 
but there's this sense that salvation is available um, to other nations. This sense shows up in Jonah. I don't know if you've ever read Jonah. Read Jonah sometimes thinking of it as sort of a comedy because it really is kind of a funny story. When you read it, we read it in my Hebrew class in in, uh, seminary, and it really is hysterical when you take it and break it down. It's a pretty, fu- it's a pretty funny story. Um, so, so we get this theme that God is here to save all of the nations of the earth, and that God even loves the people who are enemies of Israel. Uh, Assyria, where Nineveh is, had taken over the northern kingdom, and so Jonah, of course, is a prophet, didn't particularly care for them. Um, And so Jonah becomes this reluctant prophet, and he's a very comical character. So God says, go and tell the people of Nineveh that I'm going to destroy them because they're so bad. And um, so he becomes this comical character that finally hears his message to the Ninevites. He pretty much just walks just a little into the the city and says, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown, and he walks out. He just, you know, he, he doesn't. He's, he's very reluctant. He gets spit out by the whale. Uh, but he finally comes through and, and says what he's going to say, and, and then he sits back and waits for God to smite them. He can't wait. And what happens is, is that when the news reached the king of Nineveh that someone had said, 40 days and you're out of here, God's going to come wipe you off the face of the earth, the king had a proclamation made in Nineveh. Human beings and, and animals and animals shall be covered in sackcloth. And this animals is, is really kind of the word that's used for cattle in the Bible. So can you can see all the cows walking around with their sackcloth? So the human beings and animals are covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn away from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. And so this sackcloth and ashes probably hints that they're going to be praying and asking for forgiveness. And then the king says, who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. And God does relent, and God does save Nineveh. And Jonah pouts. He is so mad, and he, and he tells God, this, he like stomps his feet, this isn't fair, and he gets angry with God for relenting. And here's what God's response is to Jonah. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 20,000 people and also many cows? (laughs) God cares for people of other nations, even if they have been enemies to Israel in the past. God still cares for those people. God wants them to return to him as well. And God cares for God's creation. And so... Then there's also a future element, and we're going to wrap up here. Eventually, in the, in the Old Testament, as you all um, read through Daniel, there's this expectation of future salvation that takes the form of this apocalyptic hope uh, for the resurrection of the dead. And those times when people have been fe- re- living what they feel has been the righteous life, and they're not seeing any reward right then, their thoughts went to this apocalyptic hope for the future. And then we learn that in Daniel. But it's also present in, in Isaiah. Um, Isaiah reads, Your dead shall live and their corpses shall rise. O dwellers in the dust, 
That's a poetic way to say you dead people. Oh, dwellers in the dust, awake and sing for joy. There's a joy of our salvation. Then Isaiah 66, this is the closing chapter of Isaiah, where he talks, Isaiah talks about there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Does that sound familiar? For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants remain, meaning that they will live in the new heaven and the new earth. I've only scratched the surface, and I hope, um, thanks for hanging in with me, and I know I didn't get to some things that you said, but this is salvation, so hopefully we'll get there next time. But biblical faith is not as concerned with asking, you know, of, in what salvation consists, even though we're going to be talking about that, or in recommending techniques by which salvation may be obtained, as it is in proclaiming the fact of salvation. Salvation exists for individuals, it exists for groups, it exists for nations, and the whole of creation. And the Bible is concerned with the fact that God actually has in history, in the past, today, tomorrow, saved his people from destruction, from oppression, from injustice, from sin, the sin that causes all of that, so that those people might be blessed to be a blessing, might be a light unto the nations. Salvation, this salvation, the salvation that happened in the past, the salvation that happens today, is a foreshadowing of the salvation to come. God is a God of salvation, and that is the good news or the gospel of both, both the Old and the New Testament. Next week, we'll take a look at the New Testament. Saved from and for what?